Pretty Policeman, Multiple Paradox Net Files. These are some of The Little Darlings. It's great to be gay. Our favourite episode titles. Right on, sister. Please be gentle. From all three seasons of the logbooks. You might well be very angry. So we've printed them on a t-shirt and a poster. Crash pad needed. Kiss my rump. And our limited stock is for sale at thelogbooks.org. Interested and willing? With profits going to Switchboard. Thank you for being here. So take a look at thelogbooks.org slash shop. This episode contains stories about attacks on LGBTQ plus people, and some of those stories contain language that people may find offensive. These are clippings from a House of Lords transcript pasted into the logbook from December 1986 to February 1987. The speaker is Frank Longford, the 7th Earl of Longford, in support of the Local Government Act 1986, including the clause that became Section 28. And he said, Today we're asked to support a bill which would prevent the promotion of what is called now a positive image of homosexuality by certain London boroughs. That means that the insistence in the growing propaganda of these boroughs that heterosexuality and homosexuality should be placed on precisely the same footing. I'm bound to say, having studied some of this propaganda, that I agree with the noble earl, that it's shocking and is not really suitable for the delicate ears of your lordships. And I feel I should do his voice now because I remember these characters and they spoke like this. They said, of course, the promotion of homosexuality goes hand in hand with a good deal of promotion of promiscuity of all kinds, aimed in quite a few cases at very young children. It's revolting stuff. Can any country claiming to be Christian spend public money on the active propagation of actual homosexual practices? These are being promoted now in some areas as an alternative to fidelity in marriage and family life. The tragedy of such people is that they cannot enjoy family life. Insofar as an attempt is being made to expand homosexualism throughout this community, the outcome can only be fatally disruptive for the family. I'm not saying that the promotion of acts of homosexuality should necessarily be made illegal. I say only that it should not be financed by public bodies in a country that still claims to be Christian. But what makes a family? Ah, good question. (laughs) I guess this Lord thought that it was like a man and a woman and probably 2.4 kids. It's funny to hear that Lord give this speech in the House of Lords about expanding homosexualism through the community. (laughs) But seriously, this was a speech given in the House of Lords in my lifetime. Yeah, it's just mad to think of that. You're listening to The Logbooks, stories from Britain's LGBTQ plus history and conversations about being queer today. In partnership with Switchboard, the LGBT plus helpline. I'm Adam Smith. And I'm Tash Walker. In this season, we're reading through the notes made by the volunteers who took calls between 1983 and 1991. Episode 7, Fatally Disruptive. In this episode, we're going to be talking about Section 28, which was the law passed by Margaret Thatcher's Conservative government in 1988 to stop local authorities from promoting homosexuality and to stop schools and libraries from teaching the acceptability of homosexuality as a pretended family relationship. I still just can't believe, Tash, that that was the language from the government in our lifetimes. It feels so archaic. 
And the voices you're going to hear in this episode are from people who were teachers or training to be teachers when this law was passed, including those who protested it and those who it silenced. Tash, we didn't find a lot of calls to Switchboard about Section 28 in the logbooks when we were reading through them for this period, did we? No, not specifically, but I don't think the volunteers always used Section 28 in those logbook entries. Mm. You know, callers were contacting Switchboard at this period of time because of the direct impacts of Section 28, mm. yeah. the direct impact of the sort of fear and oppression that was happening in this period of time. And of course, that speech that we heard at the beginning was taped into the logbook, the speech from the House of Lords by one of the volunteers. I mean, they were clearly listening in to what was going on in Parliament. Yeah, but we've had enough from those old lords for now. <laughs> in this episode, we wanted to pull the voices of the people impacted by the effect of this awful law. Hello, my name is Ruth. I am a lesbian teacher. I've been teaching for 34 years. And we're going to talk today largely about the time when I worked in a large South London girls' comprehensive school. So going back to the 1980s, I was in my early 20s. I'd finished at university in Manchester, come back to London, trained to be a teacher, finished my probationary year at a school in Tower Hamlets, done a year's supply teaching, and then my third year of teaching would have been 1988. And I landed my dream job. And I was going to teach religious studies at the South London Secondary School. I was excited. I was very idealistic, uh, very optimistic. I felt as though I had the world at my feet. I joined the school in 1988 and I was a religious studies teacher. And religious studies was an interesting subject because throughout the whole time of Section 28, homosexuality was part of the curriculum, it was part of exam syllabuses. So in looking back through textbooks, homosexuality always features and I've got some textbooks here that I've been looking through. And it's, it's very much there. The classroom was a microcosm of London life. It was the most exciting place to be a teacher. It had every faith, every belief and none. It had every, every kind of family represented. There were over 70 languages spoken in the school. So it was incredibly stimulating and, and exciting. We had eggs at the window a couple of times. We had a firework through the letterbox on, on one occasion, um, but it was never the girls. It, it, was, it was always boyfriends or brothers. My name is Catherine Lee, and I started to train to be a teacher in 1986. Okay, so this is an account and it's a, a memory of a time when I was teaching in Liverpool shortly before Christmas in the early 1990s. 
The piece says, we both stare silently at my car, glistening beneath the streetlights outside our small terraced house. Every window has been smashed and it stands in an enormous pool of broken glass, which makes it twinkle like some kind of sick game show prize. I go out in my slippers and wade through the glass. I try the door handle and notice that each of the locks has been filled with a polyfiller type mixture. I reach inside, carefully avoiding the broken glass and open the glove compartment to see what's been stolen. To my amazement, the fascia of my stereo and 12 pound in cash remain exactly as I have left them. As I peer into the dark interior of the car, I then see what's motivated this act of vandalism. In the same polyfiller mixture, someone has written with their finger, Dykes die across my dashboard. I feel faint and really frightened. As I struggle to slow my racing heartbeat, my partner Sarah beckons me to come and have a look at the front of the car. Across the bonnet in letters around 10 inches high, someone has gouged the word Dyke into the paintwork. Sarah and I go inside and I call the police and try and arrange a lift for school the following day. We've been here before, so know the routine. The police won't do anything as there'll be no witnesses. And anyway, I'll feel too embarrassed by this crude revelation of my sexuality to pursue it further. The police will give me another victim support leaflet to add to my collection. I was doing my teacher training at that time and I could see that there were a lot of students struggling with their sexuality. So as a student, I wrote to the educational authority and said I would like to be able to just talk to these students, not to counsel them, but just to give them um, maybe a phone number so that they could get some advice from an organisation like Switchboard and I received a response back in no uncertain terms to say that um, I should not speak to these young people and if I did, um, I'd be thrown off my course, basically, um, and I wouldn't be able to teach again. So I felt I was deliberately keeping those young people isolated even more and I decided not to go into teaching. It wasn't the only reason, but it was a key reason in me not continuing to teach. The, the irony is, is that I trained to teach classics and English. And of course, in classical civilizations, you've got many, many references to homosexuality because it wasn't viewed in the same way that it was in our society at that time. So you're trying to teach a subject which had uh, women like Sappho, it had Julius Caesar, um, Aristotle, a lot of the key male figures especially had male partners as well. So how can you teach a subject like that and not talk about homosexuality um, in its context? So Tash, how old were you when Section 28 was repealed in 2003? Um, I would have been 17 going on 18. Ah. About you, Adam? Um, I think this. No, no. I think I'm a bit older than you. Yeah, am I? Eighteen going on nineteen. So I was eighteen going on nineteen. Yeah, exactly. So our whole mandatory education uh, careers was actually in parallel with Section Twenty Eight, which ran from eighty eight to two thousand three. Yeah, that's actually crazy. I've never really thought about that. Yeah. Um, starting primary school in <laughs> in eighty nine, right? Yeah. 
what I do remember is is trying to talk to teachers about mm. my sexuality mm. or mm. understanding. And what happened? It didn't go very well. I kind of didn't really get anywhere with them. I sort of spoke to two teachers who I really looked up to, trusted mm -hmm. and admired. I spoke to them because I thought that they were LGBTQ+. Mm -hmm. plus, and they sort of shut it down, mm. said they were straight. Mm -hmm. I just went back to the books, I guess, and <laughs> felt very alone. Yeah. yeah. Sue and Barry Blakelock have withdrawn their son Russell from school and now teach him at home. So on and so forth, could you? They support equal opportunities policies for gay people, but unlike the council, they don't wish homosexuality to be promoted as a positive choice to their young children. Of course, I think I want what every parent wants. That's for their son to grow up as some people would call normal and to have a family of his own and grandchildren, of course. I think that's what everyone wants. Section 28 was so awful, wasn't it? Yeah, it didn't go through without a fight, though. And I think it's really important to, to mention or remember that you know, Section 28 really was the result of the backlash um, against this bubbling discrimination and fear around AIDS and HIV that was represented daily in the press um, that started to move into politics. Mm -hmm. um, and, and what it was effectively was a right-wing parliament mm -hmm. um, trying to stamp out public acceptance of homosexuality. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There are a lot of people, particularly on the right of the Tory party, but there are a lot of people throughout Parliament who have always been anti-gay and they've kept quiet about it until recently. I think what's happening at the moment, and it's not just happening to lesbians and gay men, it's happening to other minorities as well, is that we're seeing something which happened in the 30s happen again, which is that certain minorities are getting persecuted in order to distract people's attention away from the really lousy things that are happening in life, like unemployment, like poverty, like homelessness, which are issues for everybody. But by picking out one or two groups as bugbears, it's very easier, easy for the government, for the media, to say, you can have a go at these people and then you'll feel a bit better. But, and Tash, you and I have to be grateful for this, our people fought back. And yeah, exactly. Uh, in the logbooks, there's this wonderful poster pasted in with this very yellowing tape um, <laughs> all these years later that has Stop Clause 28 stamped onto it. It's in red. It's sort of like graffiti styled onto this brick wall background. It says Skin Deep by Nigel Pugh, Abide With Me by Barry Keefe. Um, and it runs from the 25th of May to the 12th of June at the Three Horseshoes in Hampstead. So they're plays that are being put on for £3.50 or £2.50 concession um, to uh, raise money for Stop Clause 28 or Section 28 campaigns. Yeah, exactly. And it looks like the um, switchboard volunteers, if they show up with their card, could get, could get that concessionary rate of £2.50. Very nice. This is a logbook entry from June 5th, 1988. 11.15am. Woman in East London wanting to know implications of Clause 28 on starting a new lesbian gay restaurant there. Encouraged. A later note adds, Julian's found some. Wonderful man. This is a logbook entry from May 14th, 1988. 
Women call Orang wanting to know where she can buy a Stop the Claws t-shirt. If anyone knows, can they write it here? She will phone back in a few days to see if we found out. Answer. Well, you can order them from Spare Rib and the Pink Paper. You can buy them from Sister Right. The T-shirts were really hard to come by. I think I bought mine at the concert on June the 5th. Um, I wasn't able to get one for the march because that photograph of me on the march, I'm wearing a very big pink sweatshirt and big earrings because everything was big in, in the 1980s, big big shoulders, big everything, huge T-shirts. They were quite hard to buy, but I think I bought mine at the concert. There was lots of actresses and famous people. It was a really big rally, and that was the very first time that I saw parents of gay people out with banners being supported. There was a woman there saying, I love my lesbian daughter, and you know, there, were, there were banners saying, we love our, our, our lesbian and gay it was, oh, reduce me to tears. That, that was a fantastic march. And then there was another one that was a bit smaller. There wasn't such a big rally in Leeds. Our niece was only, what, about eight or so? And uh, she was wrapped up in everything. She had her thermals on, she had her on, she had her anorak on, she had all these layers on. But she was still cold. And we just bought this uh, Clause 28 T-shirt and so we put that over the top of her coat and it came down to her knees, you know, this adult teacher on this little girl and it came all the way down to her knees. She was loving it because she loved going on marches. She loved shouting. It was the only time as a small kid that you could shout as much as you liked and adults seemed to like it without telling you to shut up. So she, she really enjoyed a march. Um, and some uh, photographer snapped a picture of her in this, or 28, uh, T-shirt. It said, stop 28. And it, it made it made it into uh, Gay Times, and it ended up on the front cover of Gay Times. <laughs> so she ended up being quite a famous poster girl for uh, Section Twenty Eight. I love that thing of everything being bigger in the eighties. Yeah, I feel like I'm still owning that oversized T-shirt look. <laughs> My mum and dad had a, a giant Audi car. Uh, no, no, not an Audi, a Lada. <laughs> it was really big. I, I've never heard of a Lada. Yeah, <laughs> Lada, it was giant. <laughs> I think that was what I was driven around in when I was a baby. Oh my God, it's all coming back. We're about to hear from DJ Ritu, who we heard in season one and we've heard a couple of times already in season two, um, who has some stories to share uh, from the time that she worked for Haringey. And you can hear there's not just tension between people on the streets, there's also tension between people at work. One of the outstanding memories that I have with regard to challenging Section 28 is myself and a group of colleagues from Haringey Youth, Youth and Community Services, uh, all of us being at a demo outside Haringey Civic Centre. And, uh, you know, there was us and there was them. And the them included local parents they were very, very vocal. They had placards. They, there was a group of Greek women, uh, Cypriot women, that were right in the front of that side of the demo. And they were hurling insults at my very close colleague, Giriagos. He was the gay male outreach worker. 
in the youth service. He was he was quite young at that time. We were well, actually, we were roughly the same age, early twenties. There was this, you know, kind of clash between them in Greek. I didn't really understand it, you know, what was actually being said. It was very acrimonious and really frightening, actually, to see these parents that were just hell-bent. Clearly, they were frightened. You know, they were frightened about their children being taught how to be gay. They were frightened that their children would catch gayness, even if we said, actually, our parents are straight, but hey, you know, (laughs) well, you know, we didn't have gay parents, you know, hey, but look at us, you know. But yeah, there was a, there was a lot of anger, a lot of bitterness, a lot of nastiness at that time. We felt it within the youth service as well where we were working, which had a, a very robust equal opportunities policy. Haringey Council itself had a, a lesbian and gay unit by this point. It had a race equality unit, had a women's unit, women's equality unit, disabilities unit, and it also had a lesbian and gay unit. But Section 28, just really, it set the cat cat amongst the pigeons. Um, I guess this was stuff that was waiting to come up. Of course, it would be in the 80s because everyone still hated us. When the LGBTQ youth project was set up by the youth services, Kyriagos, as I say, my friend who I've mentioned, Greek Cypriot guy, there was him and there were two other workers assigned to that unit. We were based in the education offices off uh, Haringey Council. If Kyriagos got up to make a coffee, uh, when he left and he put his mug back in the big tray where the coffee making facilities were, kettle and everything, mugs, tea towels, two of the admin staff, they'd go pick up the cup, throw it away in the bin, they'd throw away the tea towel that he touched. I remember going on a on a protest march, an anti-Section 28 protest march, and the police were literally arresting the stragglers at the back of the march. I remember getting queer bashed in Trafalgar Square. Um, they broke my jaw, and the police were there. And I said to the police, I've just been beaten up because I'm gay. And, then, and the police said, but, well, are you gay? And I said, yes. And then they said, well, there's nothing we can do about it then. And the people who had beaten me up were literally less than 100 yards away at this point. I mean, if they cared, they could have arrested them. But the police told me very clearly, because you're gay, we don't care if you get attacked. And that's what it was like back then. The police weren't our friends. And we saw numbers on some of those Section 28 protests that we had never seen before on any congregation of LGBT people. I remember the one in Manchester, and I think I have a photo of it, and I think it's labelled uh, Matthew Hodson and 20,000 people. It's labelled with my name because it was taken by, by my boyfriend. It was not because I was particularly special. Being amongst 20,000 people who were almost entirely LGBT because the LGBT ally thing was not then what it is now, was an amazing feeling, and we felt that we had power, and we built on that. Section 28 kicked off a new wave of political activism from LGBTQ plus people. Neil Cavalier-Smith was part of this. He was involved in student politics at the time and an international network of similarly young and spunky troublemakers called Igloo, I-G-L-Y-O. So here's what they got up to. Partly because of Clause 28, Igloo decided to have its global congress in London so that we could both show solidarity to British people and make some kind of an action against the government. The organisation was sponsored by various 
European and international bodies and we flew over a hundred young lesbians and gays from all around the world from as far afield as South America and the US and as close as you know lots and lots from Holland and Denmark and Scandinavia all those and Germany all the, the sort of the low countries had very were very far progressed in terms of gay rights so we assembled a hundred or more 120 or so gay and lesbian young people all under 25 uh, for a conference in in central London which lasted a week and we decided to take some direct action and go and stage a demonstration we decided to stage a kissing because at the time you could be arrested for kissing uh, someone of the same sex and so we thought well if we could get 120 people from all around the world arrested for kissing it would make 120 separate diplomatic incidents all around the world um, so we announced by press release that we were going to do this, rented a couple of coaches and bust over to Piccadilly Circus, uh, where one of the Norwegians immediately climbed to the very top of Eros and, and kissed the arse of Eros, and everyone else <laughs> kissed each other. Good 20 minutes, half an hour. I mean, yeah, we were getting... We, were <laughs> we kept on kissing until the camera stopped clicking and I particularly remember a double-decker bus of Japanese tourists that stopped next to us because it just became this fabulous wall of cameras and flashbulbs and, you know, just, you know, the Japanese in those days seemed to have two cameras each hanging from their necks and so the, the bus sort of almost leant towards Eros and we all just played up to the... Um, the, the fascinated tourists. It was peculiar. No one seemed to mind. I think there might have been one old lady um, with a shopping trolley who tutted a bit. But and here's here's a headline from Capital Gay. That's me and my my boyfriend at the time, Mark, kissing. It says, "Core, what a smacker! A hundred join kissing." Um, and this, interestingly, was featured in newspapers far and wide around the world, but not very much in the UK. Um, it hit the gay press everywhere, but it was largely ignored by the straight press because the police stayed away. So though it was rush hour in London, in probably the most heavily policed corner of our capital, they actively withdrew and left us to it because they had made a decision not to give us the publicity that we were looking for. And now we're going to hear from previous volunteer Femi, who, Adam, you went to interview. Yes, I went to interview her in Haringey in North London. And Haringey is really significant in this story. So we're in Haringey. And uh, I think it's interesting that right this moment, as we do this interview, we are sitting at the place where the reason for Section 28 started. So at that time, this would have been 1986-7, I was working in the lesbian and gay unit in Haringey, just uh, a mile or so away from where we are now. And a mile or so in the other direction is the town hall where the first discussion started around Section 28. Except they were never about that, they were about the portrayal of lesbians and gay men positively in schools. And I remember the debates very clearly because the catalyst for them came out of the place where I was working. The borough, the Labour borough here, Harringay, had committed as part of its election manifesto to making sure that lesbians and gay men were positively portrayed in education. And we, as the unit, offered to help all the schools in the borough do that. Unrelated to that initiative, which was just sending a letter out to all the schools, Harringay Central Library, which is just up the road from here, 
uh, had in its teachers section in the, um, in the a book called Jenny Little Eric and Martin. publications which equate gay lifestyles with normality. One such book, now notorious, is Jenny Lives with Eric and Martin, describing a little girl's life with her father and his homosexual lover. I'm hungry, says Jenny. Can't we have breakfast soon? All right, all right, says Martin, sitting up and rubbing his eyes. We'll have breakfast then. Eric stretches and yawns. Oh good, it's Saturday. And I remember hearing that somebody, um, a parent, had seen that book, had assumed that it was being given out to children or at least decided to portray it in that way. And then questions were asked in our own local town hall and then the local newspaper picked it up and then the national press. And then the next thing we heard is it was being held, discussed in Parliament, the Secretary for Education was asking about it. It might have been Ken Baker at the time. And then Jane, Dame Jill Knight then pushed through this amendment to the local government bill, which was already kind of on its journey towards um, getting one assent, and added the amendment, which at that time was clause 2A, but later became section 28 of the Local Government Act. I remember uh, councillors fasting on our town hall at the end of the steps. I remember huge debates in the council chamber, false accusations about my colleagues who were accused of physical assault, which they hadn't done. And I remember people trying to say that the pro-lesbian and gay stance of the council was racist because the black communities didn't have lesbians and gay men in them. Um, but what that did, that, that piece of legislation, once it actually got onto the statute books, is it gave license to everybody who had always been harboring those prejudices. So section 28 was a nasty, pernicious piece of legislation, partly because of what it said, but largely because of what it unleashed. On reflection, um, when we hear from everyone about their memories of Section 28, the, the fight against it, and then it, you know, it coming into legislation, what it feels like hangs in the air the most is the threat of Section 28. Mm, that's it, because people say, don't they, like, well, no one was convicted under Section 28. No teacher officially lost their job uh, because they spoke about being uh, a lesbian or something like that. And uh, and yet it had this chilling effect, as as we've definitely heard from all these uh all these interviews. Another big uh, impact that it had was it was the reason uh, why the charity Stonewall was founded in 1989 by a small group of people uh, who had been active in the protests and the struggles against Section 28. And it's still going very strong today. As a piece of legislation, it wasn't repealed until 15 years later in 2003. And uh, fortunately, Stonewall, the organisation that was set up to fight it uh, or in response to it, is, um, you know, has outlived the legislation itself and become bigger and more important. You know, we need to remember that it really did leave a lasting impact on people like Ruth. Yeah, it's, it is difficult, though. Really, really, this has really kind of opened it up for me. It's really made me go back there. And I do think a lot of it is buried. I think it's trauma. You know, just as any kind of oppression or any kind of um, hatred traumatizes people. 
The thing that made Conservatives pass that anti-LGBTQ plus legislation, Section 28, was a children's book called uh, Jenny Lives with Eric and Martin. Um, And that book, of course, was banned from schools and libraries because of the law. Which is now thankfully in the bin. Yes, but the need to make sure our young people know about different kinds of families and relationships is definitely still around. And recently, a new book was published. And you'll never guess what it was called. Kenny lives with Erica and Martina. (laughs) (laughs) Do you see what they did there? Uh, The author, Ollie Pike, who also makes YouTube videos, held a launch in London. And we went along to that event for some free snacks and to hear why the book is so important. I've followed Ollie's work uh, for the last couple of years and I really, really love the books. I've bought the books for friends and family who have young kids and they absolutely love the stories. Um, So seeing what Ollie's doing today I think is absolutely amazing. Um, Trying to get the books into more and more schools is absolutely brilliant. I think that's a massive juxtaposition to where things were in the 80s uh, when books were being removed. Um, and Section 28 was then formed. So I think it's absolutely amazing what he's doing. I love his work and uh, I'll be buying more books tonight. Well, I was born in 1938, so I'm 81. And uh, if you were breaking the law, anything you might do, even, even thoughts, and it was all rather subversive, which in some, on some occasions was quite exciting. And uh, to think of things like this being hopefully readily available and let's hope they do get into all the schools. I think it's, uh, and it's quite remarkable, the change that's happened. I run a charity in the education sector that exists to support the well-being of anyone working in education. And uh, obviously in the current climate with protests in Birmingham and so on and so forth, we have an increasing amount of interest in how LGBT plus teachers might be feeling in the face of parental responses to the changing curriculum. So that's what brings me here. I'm one of the backers of the book, so Pop and Ollie on YouTube. Um, There's nothing like this when I was growing up, so it's important that kids of tomorrow get the information about different, different relationships and different families and so on and so forth. I believe they should have these books. They're taught in schools about acceptance of all different peoples, different cultures, different religions. We're no different. They need to, then people need to know. And by teaching the children, then we're going to teach the adults because they're going to go home and, well, we learnt this in school. And perhaps mummy or daddy, then you need to change your views. From very humble unions, namely my mum and dad's front living room, Bob and Ollie has now become a go-to LGBT plus and quality entertainment resource for children, parents, carers and teachers. In the next episode, we're going to continue hearing stories about Section 28's impact, but also more widely about the experience for young people between 1983 and 1991.
The Logbooks is produced by Shivani Dave, Tash Walker and Adam Smith in partnership with Switchboard, the LGBT plus helpline. If you think other people would like The Logbooks, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. These ratings and reviews really help others to discover the show. You can send us your feedback and stories to hello at thelogbooks.org or join the conversation on social media with the hashtag thelogbooks. Our music is by Tom Foskett Barnes and our artwork is by Natalie Dotto. Thanks to Steph Dickers and team at the Bishopsgate Institute, the BFI National Archive, the folks at ACAST, MACE, the Media Archive for Central England, Peter Zaccaroli at West Digital, Content is Queen, the staff and volunteers at Switchboard, and all the contributors who shared their stories. Switchboard continues to take phone calls from 10am to 10pm every day. If you're affected by any of the issues in this podcast or need to discuss anything to do with your gender identity or sexuality, you can call Switchboard on 0300 330 0630, email chris at switchboard.lgbt or instant message via switchboard.lgbt where you can also donate money or time to help.